0: following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America, located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Imagine, if you will, that you're standing on the deck of a ship. Making its way to port through a very thick fog before dawn, when not even the stars above can help you to chart your course through the inky darkness. What should you be keeping an eye out for? What could you possibly be looking for in the dark? With focus and determination, you would look for some light, some glimmer, some flash some even faint illumination, but not just any light. You would be looking specifically for the guiding light of the lighthouse because that is your guide to shore. The lighthouse's light will lead you to shore. In that lighthouse, my friends, would be your hope to arrive at the port, and that lighthouse will show you the way to safe harbor, to firm ground beneath your feet, and to warmth of a fireplace and company. In the Beatitudes that we've been considering these past weeks, these blessed statements that mark out uh, what Christian discipleship looks like, what kingdom living is to be, and what human flourishing in the church uh, looks like, our Lord is He's shining a light on the way of wisdom, on the way of righteousness, on the way of godliness in this world polluted by sin as it is. The Beatitudes, as I've argued in the past and I'll continue to say, are not entry requirements for the kingdom of heaven. They're not even promises of divine reward for Christian behavior or good obedience to God our Father. Though those elements are present, that's not primarily what they are. Rather, these are Christ our King's authoritative declarations, even royal decrees, of the kind of life that produces spiritual happiness in God's world, that produces holiness of life in God's service, and, as I've said already, human flourishing as God's image bearers. These are wisdom statements, and in them, Jesus tells us what it means to be holy and happy as disciples of Christ. The five that we've considered so far lead up to this sixth beatitude. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. We began with those who were poor in spirit, and we understand that they recognize their great need for God to provide for them. And these poor in spirit are also those who mourn over their sin, the pollution of sin both in them and around them in the world, Who then go on to be the meek and gentle, to bear that mark of Christian discipleship in light of their own felt sinfulness, that they have nothing in hand to bring to God. So how can they demand anything from others? And so then we continued on and we saw they have another reason not to be demanding or imposing. For even if they're courageous and tenacious in pursuit of God and His goodness, they hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God knowing that there is no hope of salvation apart from the saving work of God in Christ and the sanctifying presence of His Spirit in their lives. The defining trait of their relationships then, as we turned a corner in the Beatitudes last week, is that of mercy, of compassion one to another and to other sinners in need. In fact, their cups, they overflow with mercy, overflow with comfort and and compassion just as they have received the same from God. These poor, mournful, gentle, hungry, thirsty, and merciful citizens of the kingdom of heaven are likewise described in our text this evening as pure in heart. And so what I shall seek to show you from this beatitude is that a sincerely holy life both honors God and leads you to delight in Him just as He is. And laying out His design for heavenly kingdom living, Christ at once calls you to give God highest honor from the heart and invites you to delight in Him. It's a profound combination. And so we see that a sincerely holy life both honors God and leads you to delight in Him just as He is. And we will consider our text this evening in two parts First, looking at a sincerely holy life, or sincerely holy living, and then looking at your delight in the triune God. Sincerely holy living, your delight in the triune God. So first, sincerely holy living. There are four things that I I want to break this down as for you. First, we're going to ask, what is Christ addressing here when he says pure in heart? And then we'll ask, what is Christ's objective in addressing this particular theme. And then we'll ask, what is his concern? Specifically his concern for you. And then finally, I'll give you a very brief, but I think biblical test for your heart as you seek to diagnose your spiritual vitality. So first, posing this question, what is Christ addressing here? He's addressing your life. He's addressing your life, and I say that because of the very structure of the Beatitudes, By this beatitude formula, he's charting out for you the life of spiritual vitality. Not the abstract concepts, not the principles or philosophies, but the actual life of spiritual vitality. This beatitude formula, and I haven't really gotten into this up to this point as we've worked through it, but here it's very appropriate to do so. This beatitude formula is present both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it's called an asherism. Taking from the Hebrew, Ashrei, which is what begins Psalm 1. Ashrei Ha'ish, how blessed is the man. I don't typically like to bring the original languages into the pulpit, but I thought it was instructive this evening. And so, regardless of your knowledge of Hebrew or Greek, I know that you're familiar with Psalm 1, 1 through 3. Even you boys and girls should be familiar with this. How blessed is a man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does he prospers. Notice, this is not describing a philosophy. This is not describing an abstraction. The psalmist here in this statement, as is common in many other Old Testament statements using the same construction, is describing a life. A life actually lived. In the opening verses, he details the blessed man's life, what we understand to be Christ's life and perfection, but that to which each of us yearn and strive for. You see his demonstrated conduct in verse 1, that he doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the sinner's paths or sit in the seat of scoffers. You see his heart's delight in the law of the Lord in verse 2, and then his evident flourishing or vitality, the effects of such a life in verse 3. Well, this pattern, this beatitude pattern, this asherism pattern, it carries over into the New Testament, and particularly in Christ's teaching. However, because we're going from Hebrew to Greek, it's not called an asherism, it's called a makarism, coming from the Greek makarios, which means, as we translate it, blessed, but could also mean happy is, or probably the best would be flourishing is, vital is, living to its fullest. Is And that's what we've been looking at in the Beatitudes. And we come to how blessed or blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. By this formula, as I've said, dealing with your life, how you live your life, Christ is charting out the life of spiritual vitality. He's authoritatively teaching, as I've said, wisdom to his followers Specifically, what he's doing with the disciples in this context is he's preparing them for life in the kingdom of heaven between his ascension into glory and his return at the last day, what we confess together from the larger catechism. This would be like you parents. You're raising your children. If you have a five-year-old, you're not raising him or rearing him, I should say, to become a six-year-old. You're not even raising him or her to become an 18-year-old, are you? You, as a conscientious and good parent, as a mother or father, should always be thinking, what kind of man or woman will my son or daughter turn out to be? You're rearing your children for mature adulthood. As one father put it to me one day, he said, Zach, don't don't rear your children uh, for 18, rear them for 30. You're preparing them for life without you. That is why, in one part, the Bible speaks so tenderly of orphans, those who are without parents in in an unnatural kind of way, those who lose their parents at a very young age and don't have that that care and nurturing that come from conscientious parents. So that's that's what Christ is addressing. He's addressing the lives of his hearers, your very lives, in preparing them, setting before them what godliness and maturity looks like. But what's his objective? His objective is your holiness. Specifically, this is where purity comes in. It involves two things. Purity involves both cleanness of heart or life, but also integrity of heart and life. First, purity as I think all of us are quick to associate it with, involves cleanness from sin, but especially the sin of idolatry, which is again and again described as defilement and adultery. Note here the words of Jeremiah from Jeremiah chapter 4. He cries out to the people, Wash your heart from evil, O Jerusalem, or clean your heart from evil, that you may be saved. How long will your wicked thoughts lodge within you? And God says to them, "Your ways and your deeds have brought these things, that is, foreign invaders and, and captivity and desolation, to you. This is your evil. how bitter, how it has touched your heart, not just your external circumstances, but your heart." And then Ezekiel 36: 25 and 27, in a, in a much in, in, in the promise end of things here. Not the threatening or the cursing end, but the promise end. What does God promise to his sinful, defiled people in Ezekiel 36? Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Why is this purity from idolatry and sin so important? Revelation 21 tells us, Nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into the heavenly Jerusalem where God dwells. But only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life And again, Revelation 22, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. And as we explore the New Testament witness... And specifically, the teaching of Paul in this connection is very interesting to determine what exactly this uncleanness looks like in the heart. We know what it looks like in outward deeds. I think that's fairly obvious from the passages, but what it looks like in the heart. We read in 1 Timothy 1, 5 to 7 this, but the goal of our instruction, Paul's writing to Timothy, is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So what's the opposite of that? For some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. Defilement looks like presumption about God's truth, presumption about his word and about spiritual things, even though you have no understanding. Paul continues in 2 Timothy chapter 2, he, he, he writes to Timothy again, Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, but refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. Again, ignorant speculations, youthful lusts. These are the things that are opposed to a pure heart in New Testament teaching. So what is Christ's object? Your holiness. Of what? Your life. That's what he's addressing. And now his concern specifically is that you would be sincere of heart. And remember that he looks all the way down, even to the depths of your being. He looks down into your heart, to cleanse you from this sin, this idolatry, to bring to you, rather, to call you to integrity in thought, speech, and behavior. This is the kind of man that God accepts, as we read in Psalm 24, 3 through 6, is our Old Testament reading. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, who may enter into the heavenly Jerusalem, we might say, who may stand in his holy place, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn... Deceitfully. This is the kind of man that God accepts. It's illustrated for us back in Genesis chapter 20 with good King Abimelech after Abram's half truth and deception. What, what does he say to God? He says, Did he, did he not say, himself say to me, She is my sister? And she herself said, He is my brother. In the integrity of my heart, in the innocence of my hands, I have done this, bringing Sarah into my tent. Then God said to him in this dream, To this good King Abimelech, Yes. I know that in the integrity of your heart you have done this. And I also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. That's the illustration here. That's what God accepts. That's the kind of man that God delights in. It's such a sharp contrast to the vanity, the self-promotion, the insincerity, the artifice, the lies, and the cunning of the world today. Who's celebrated in the world today? The politician who can win an election against all odds because he's just a bald-faced liar and tricks people into believing him. The entertainer who puts on a show of, of virtue and compassion and generosity, but then does unspeakable things in the dark in the privacy of his own home. Or that man who proclaims the word of God even in righteousness and truth, but yet in his heart leads a double life. God delights in none of this because he's concerned with sincerity. As we read in 1 Samuel 16, God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Man considers religious externalism, formalism, as sufficing God's demand for holiness tempted to set up our own standards of what is holy and what is not, but God rejects those. He has a much higher standard, one that goes right down into the heart. Think about Christ's critique of the Pharisees. The Beatitudes in Matthew 5 actually parallel the woes that he pronounces on the Pharisees in Matthew 23, where he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish, so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. In response, dear ones, consider the words of James. The one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded, we might say hypocritical man, unstable in all his ways. Rather, as James continues later on, draw near to God and he will draw near you cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double minded. That's exactly what Christ's concern is here hypocrisy, being of a divided mind, saying one thing but perhaps meaning another or actually desiring another, being insincere, performative, we might say, in your interactions with men, pragmatic, asking what will work rather than what is right or what will please God. And then, of course, self-seeking and self-promoting. Isn't this why John the Baptist called the Pharisees and the scribes, you brood of vipers, because they were coming out merely to associate with this new movement for their own interests? Children, I might pose the question to you, when you're at home and your parents tell you to do something, to clean up your room or to put on a particular outfit for church or something, why do you obey? Do you obey simply? to avoid punishment, to escape a spanking for your own self-interest, or do you obey from the heart as one who is glad to follow your mother and your father wherever they lead you because you know that they love you? That's what Christ is getting at here. He wants your heart. He wants your sincerity. That's his concern. For the Lord looks at the heart. What is he looking for? Surely God is good to Israel, says the psalmist in Psalm 73, specifically to those who are pure in heart. What does he find? He finds double-mindedness even in the best of men. Genesis 6:5 says that the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent, every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And we know that the situation didn't much improve after the flood. Jeremiah tells us the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. So what do we need to escape this double-mindedness, to to break this pattern of sin in our lives? Well, we need unity of sight. Jesus will say in Matthew chapter 6, in the next chapter, he'll say the eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear or sincere or single, I believe as it says in the King James, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad or evil, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. So What do you do? You pray. You pray with the psalmist in 86. Teach me your way, O Lord. I will walk in your truth. Unite my unify my heart. Make it one to fear your name. To give, I will give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with all my heart and will glorify your name forever for your loving kindness toward me is great and you have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. That's what God is about. He's about delivering you from double-mindedness and hypocrisy so that we might then rest In that trust expressed in Psalm 73, then, with your counsel you will guide me, and afterward receive me to glory. To do what? To see him. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Can't you tell I wish we could have sang 12 psalms tonight? Keep on drawing from this this great description of the heart of he who was once alienated from God and then reconciled to him and brought into his presence. That's what we're after this evening. Christ's concern is your sincerity of heart. So here's a test. Here's how you can diagnose your spiritual vitality. Consider Proverbs four. 20 through 27. My son, give attention to my words, incline your ear to my sayings. Do not let them depart from your sight, keep them in the midst of your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health to all their body. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you a deceitful mouth, and put devious speech far from you. Let your eyes look directly ahead, and let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Watch the path of your feet, and all your ways will be established. Do not turn to the right nor to the left. Turn your foot from evil. Reflect on what you desire, what is in your heart. Do you desire that which accords with God's word? Have you taken his words as they've been given to you and put them in your heart and made them your own? Children, you are dragged here, perhaps sometimes unwillingly by your parents, week in and week out. And what do Dr. Pipa and I do? We seek to put God's word before you hoping that the Spirit will carry it then into you. And we call upon each of you to make the testimony of your parents your own, to rest in the Lord Jesus Christ and to make His loves your loves and His hates your hates, loving God's law but hating the sins of the world. Reflect on what you desire. Listen to your words as they come out of your mouth. What do you speak to each other? Husbands, what do you speak to your wives? Do you speak in tenderness or lasciviousness? Do you speak with harshness or with gentleness? Bearing with her as a weaker vessel, as we're told. And wives, how do you speak to your husbands? Do you berate him and nag him? Or do you speak to him respectfully with gentleness yourself and with love for the man that God has given to you as your protector and provider and defense? And then observe what you do. Christ breaks this down in Matthew 15. He says, The things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. I guarantee you, if you take a spiritual inventory of your thoughts, your words, your deeds, you will find indeed and in fact That however bad your environment is, the source of your sin is right here. The black tar of Adam's sin, of pollution, of self-centeredness, it bubbles up in all of these areas of our lives. And then consider, as you make this inventory, consider what you value by where you invest your time, where you invest your talent and your energies and your expertise, and of course, Where you put your money, where you invest your treasure. Matthew 6, 21 says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And while Christ is speaking particularly of earthly treasures, he's also speaking of everything that you can claim in some sense as your own. Wherever those things are going, wherever those resources are going, that's where your heart is. That's where your love is. What do you find? What are you finding about yourself? I've set out before you what is meant by pure in heart, and I believe it's a sincerely holy life. And I've run you through this brief test of the spiritual vitality of your own heart and life, so now we must consider what Christ tells us is reserved for the pure in heart. And that's what we're going to look at under this heading, Your Delight in the Triune God. But before we do, I hope that as you've considered your own thoughts, words, and deeds, as you've looked into your own heart with this test built off of Proverbs 4 and Matthew 15, that you recognize your need for God's salvation. For I've mentioned already just a few minutes ago that those who are poor in spirit, recognizing their great need for God to provide for them an alien righteousness from outside of themselves, they will mourn over the pollution of the sin that they find in their hearts and also around them in the world. And then the hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God, not only his justification and full pardon in Christ and that alien righteousness, but also worked in righteousness and holiness of life that comes as a gift of the Holy Spirit. And then their hope, and that hope, is what is offered to you this evening in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who says to you, Blessed are the pure in heart, knowing full well that you are not on your own pure in heart. For they shall see God. You see, through His saving grace alone, through what Christ has done on our behalf, Christ offers you not judgment and condemnation and terror, but rather joy and delight in the triune God if you but trust in Him. If you believe on Him, if you hear these words... And by a faith produced by the Holy Spirit, call upon him for salvation. So now let's consider what this great treasure is, this prize which he sets before you, your delight in the triune God. What is Christ addressing? What is Christ's subjective? What is Christ's concern? And then finally, how can you prepare your heart? We'll go through this rather quickly. First, what is Christ addressing? In this, he's addressing your experience, both present and future. Your communion with God through Him in the present, here and now, but also in the future in glory. Present communion with God is seen in how God reveals Himself even now, as He promises in Psalm 18. With the king, you show yourself kind. With the blameless, you show yourself blameless. With the pure, you show yourself right now pure. And with the crooked, you show yourself astute. For you save an afflicted people, but haughty or proud eyes you abase. For you light my lamp. The Lord my God illumines my darkness, for by you I can run upon a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. God promises to show himself to you in the here and now. How does he do it? Well, he reveals himself to those who are born again. In 2 Corinthians, we read, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. What has come a completely new understanding of everything around you, of your trials and of your triumphs, of your deprivations and of your material delights, of everything you have. You have a new understanding as you see Him in the light of God. You behold nature, not as the random product of billions of years of of material process, but rather you behold nature as His precious creation. And you can delight in Him through it. You see providence and the working of history, again, not as a contest between men and nations, but rather as the glorious design of God to preserve and promote his people's good and well-being, that he might have a people and be praised. You then have knowledge of God, not as a cold, sterile, memorized, rote knowledge, but rather as warm and life-giving truth. Children, as you memorize the catechism, perhaps now it doesn't make much sense to you. As you memorize certain Bible verses that are important, you're just getting the words together. But one day, when the Holy Spirit makes you new, everything's going to fall into place, and those words will be like precious jewels in your possession. And then finally, in Christian experience, when you speak to um, when you speak to a Christian believer who has many years of experience, what do you hear? You typically hear things like, God has been so good to me. God carried me through that trial. Speaking with uh, Tony and Kathleen Curto yesterday, no, for, uh, Wednesday, uh, Friday when I went to their home. And Dr. Curto said to me that they've just been reading Thomas Watson. And you would think that a woman who's been diagnosed with what by all accounts looks like terminal cancer, would be bitter in heart and would say, why God, why? And perhaps there's a place for her to say why. But instead, what Tony and Kathleen have been meditating on is this. That by this trial, which may even end her life, God is sanctifying her, making her more like Jesus. And in this, she finds delight. Brothers and sisters, delight In terminal cancer, Christian experience is completely different than the worldlings experience. That's what present communion with God looks like in your experience. Now, future communion with God is what we confess in our catechism. In heaven, we're told in Matthew 18, angels behold God in some way. This is a mystery to us. But it's foretaste by the prophets. When Isaiah saw God, he saw the Lord sitting on a throne lofty and exalted with the train of his robes filling the temple. And Ezekiel testifies that he saw God as the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day. So was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and heard a voice speaking. And we caught a glimpse of that even this morning from Matthew 28 and Dr. Pipe's passage and sermon when the centurions, they fell speechless and dumb at the sight of the angel of the Lord who was lightning and just this imposing presence, this vision of God and glory foretaste by the prophets experienced by the angels will be ours, but only in Christ. In Christ, we have this hope of a vision of God. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake, says the psalmist in Psalm 17. Where does this righteousness come from? It comes from Christ alone. We could multiply verses. John's gospel, in particular, develops this theme again and again of seeing God through Jesus Christ. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father already, he tells Philip. And we could continue on and, and going in that direction. Now, that's what he's addressing, and that dovetails nicely then into his objective, giving you this sight, pointing it out to you as the possession of God as your inheritance. You see, there will be a sight of God for the wicked and the just on the day of judgment. For the wicked, it will be terrible. They'll hide from it. They'll flee from it. But then face with it for all eternity, they will see the unmitigated wrath of God and his justice. But for the righteous... Those who have been made pure in heart by the Holy Spirit's work in their lives, they will see God with delight, not as their judge, but as their possession, as their inheritance, we're told, as their great interest in heaven above. If God is invisible and unseen, if he's a spirit, then what does it mean to see him? It can only mean one thing, to possess him. This sight as possession of God. It's a realization of something that's promised or anticipated. In this case, it is an inheritance. Judah asked me the other day if he could have uh, some silver coins I have in a chest. And I said, no, no, I'm keeping them there because they were given to us on our wedding. I was keeping them safe. And he said, well, when you die, am I going to get them? And I said, well, I guess. I don't know. I'm going to divide them up among you kids if I still have them. But that's what an inheritance is. It's when you anticipate getting something, but you don't realize it until certain conditions are met. And that's what this sight of God that Christ describes in the second half of our beatitude is. The possession of God as inheritance. Paul makes this prayer in Ephesians 1.18. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us. Who believe. This describes the church's inheritance as the inheritance of each of us who believe. He says, What is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? And then Revelation 22 gives us a picture of the saints being marked by God on their foreheads and of God, therefore, belonging to them, that they can claim him as their own. His concern in drawing this out and saying that you shall see God, then is your delight that you would enjoy God just as He is, as triune, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That in seeing and possessing God, Christ is teaching that the pure in heart will see Him not, not in any deceptive way, but really just as He is, and the beauty. And his pure beauty and essence, insofar as our created minds can apprehend him. Think about it this way. You, um, a lot of people moving into the area now, and I've heard from realtors now that people are putting in offers on homes, sight unseen, without having seen them themselves. I know in the Pipa's case, Dr. Pipa came first, checked out a house, told Mrs. Pipa about it. And Mrs. Pipa kind of had to be left wondering for a little while when they moved here 20-some years ago but now people are coming in without ever seeing the house, perhaps except maybe one of those virtual walkthroughs where you can get a video or something like that. Now imagine the absurdity of someone buying a house here but never moving here to enjoy it, just staying in California or whatever third world country they live in to to enjoy the virtual walkthrough and say, wow, all of this is mine now, this is so cool. No, my friends, what's promised to us is to enjoy God just as he is, in his very presence. Not in a virtual walkthrough, not in some live stream church, but his actual presence through Christ the Son. And this is where enjoying him as Trinity comes into play. Because as Christians, we confess a Trinitarian God. Our enjoyment is directed to the Father, but it's always through Christ the Son. That's the only way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Him, it says in John 14, 6. And this enjoyment of God then, even this desire to come into His presence, it's born of the Spirit. You see how all three persons are are at work here together to bring you before the mercy seat. Directed to the Father through Christ the Son, born of the Spirit who instructs us, by His word, which we're storing it up in our hearts through the ministry of the church, we see here enjoying God as Trinity, just as He is. First John three uh, verse two or verse nine says, "No one is born of God. Uh, no one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God." Well, you cannot force your own birth, my friends. It's a work. Of the Spirit, it's not man made. And this is under Christ's headship and authority. And so, having reviewed what Christ is addressing, your experience, his objective, your sight, your possession of God, and his concern, your delight in that possession of God as your inheritance, we then can apply all of this in some simple instructions of preparing your heart for that royal audience with God look to your Savior King now. Behold him as he is set before you. There's a problem of double-mindedness in the world today, but it afflicts you and me. No matter how long we've been Christians, even those who believe struggle with double-mindedness, struggle with distraction and lethargy and slothfulness in their spiritual lives. We bemoan this fact with Paul in Romans 7, I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. We all wrestle. As long as we live on this terrestrial globe, we wrestle with our sin. So what do we do? Boys and girls, men and women, brothers and sisters, you look to Christ and recognize the sufficiency of his grace. For his grace is sufficient For all of this. And rest on him in faith. As John writes, Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not yet appeared what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him. Because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. How can you prepare for that day? Fix your mind and your heart on Jesus. Heed the word then to pursue peace through purity in heart practically what this looks like in our fellowship as this church grows lord willing is described in hebrews 12:14 pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which uh, no one will see the lord you know there are many distractions that will assail you in this life, perhaps even on the way home or wherever you're going after this service this evening. Those distractions are trying to pull your gaze away from Christ. But like a ship coming to port through thick fog and darkness, you need to beware of the distractions. You need to beware of them and instead focus on the guiding light that is set before you in the person and work of Christ Jesus. The light of the one true Christ blazes the way to life with God, to human flourishing in his church, communion with the triune God now and in eternity, and spiritual satisfaction in the kingdom of heaven where there is no want, there is no regret, there is no need. Will you follow him? Or will some strange fire or siren song pull you away from his path and pull you away from him? If you will enjoy his righteous reign as the king of heaven, you must follow after him from the heart as his true disciple. That's what he is setting before you this night. For as we have seen today, a sincerely holy life both honors God and leads you to delight in him just as he is. A sincerely holy life. It's not just a matter of external obedience, of pragmatically pursuing moral behavior or appearances for the sake of avoiding pain or of winning esteem from your fellow man. Rather, it is a profound matter of the heart. It is far greater than the legalisms and self-help advice of our day. Indeed, you must be born again, as we've seen again and again. A spiritually dead heart cannot be pure, for death and defilement are foreign the eternally living and holy triune God. Spiritual eyes that are closed in spiritual death, they will not open to the majesty and mercy of the Father unless the Spirit of the Son opens them. The Spirit of Christ who gave sight to the physically blind in his earthly ministry he continues to give sight even now to the spiritually blind of this world. And insofar as the word of Christ has been faithfully read and preached this day, in the morning by Dr. Piper, and this evening by me. Insofar as that word has been faithfully read and preached, you have seen him, and you have seen God in him. In a glorious mystery, but really and truly, you have been visited and confronted by the risen Savior, which we celebrate, but have you beheld him? Have you made him your own? Has your heart, purified by the Holy Spirit's reviving and sanctifying presence, that making holy presence, has your heart experienced delight at the revelation of Christ or disgust and scorn? My friends, boys and girls, if your soul is sleepy, unstop your ears, open your eyes. Behold your God and delight in Him. Hear our King declaring to you, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. O Christian, this glorious thought I leave with you, you were made for this, to see God just as He is. And you were made new by His Spirit to behold Him. Let us pray together.